If you would, uh, turn with me in your Bible to, uh, to Genesis chapter 22. As we continue in the book of Genesis, this morning we'll be in uh, Genesis chapter 22. And if you're using uh, one of the Red Pew Bibles, that is page 16 in the Pew Bible. And I'll be reading this morning from the New American Standard uh, translation. Genesis chapter 22. Moses writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... And he says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and split wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and the knife So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him upon the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now it came about after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, and Buz his brother, and Kemuel the father of Aram, and Kesed, and Hazo, and Pildash, and Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Reumah, also bore Teba, and Gaham, and Tehash, and Maacah. Now, as we consider this 
chapter this morning, we will do so under, under two main headings. The first is justification by works, and the second is the shadows of a greater sacrifice. Justification by works and the shadows of a greater sacrifice. As this chapter opens here, we see Abraham's trial of faith. We see in verse 1 that God tested Abraham. He was testing him or trying him, trying his faith by commanding him to do something that was difficult, something seemingly strange. And this trial is clearly extreme. Right? This is one of the most, if not the most, extreme trials ever known to man. Here is Abraham, the man who had received the promise of a son, who had received the fulfillment of that promise with the birth of Isaac, as we saw last week in chapter 21. Abraham knew that this was the boy in whom the fulfillment of God's promises would be made. The Lord had explicitly said to him that it is through Isaac that your descendants shall be named. It would have been very clear about this. But nevertheless, here, the Lord said to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And Abraham said, Okay. Now, obviously, that's, that's not in the text. There's no indication that he verbally said, Okay, but it's very clear that that's essentially what he said in his heart. It is clear that that was what was in his heart was because of what he did. The Lord gave the command in verse 2, and look at what comes immediately next there in verse 3. So Abraham arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. He split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. God gave him this command that seemed to run counter to all of the promises that he had received. God had promised him that he would be a great nation, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. These were going to come through Isaac. Ishmael had already been sent away, as we saw. And so this command seemed to run counter to the promises that God had made to Abraham. And those promises had even received their installment, as it were, with the birth of Isaac. But let's be honest, that's not the only difficult thing about this command was the fact that it seemed to run counter to the promises of God. That's not the only difficult thing here. Abraham, as we've seen in the text of Genesis to this point, is a tender-hearted father. It's very clear that he loved Ishmael. He had interceded with God that Ishmael might live before him, as we saw in Genesis 17, 18. He was distressed when Sarah demanded that Ishmael be sent away. Abraham is a tender-hearted father, all the more so here in the case of Isaac. You see how the Lord refers to Isaac when he speaks to Abraham. He calls Isaac your son, your only son, whom you love. Now, obviously, Isaac is not the only son in a strictly literal sense, but Isaac was the only son of his legitimate wife, Sarah. Isaac was the only son of promise. Isaac was the only son who was destined for the inheritance, the only son through whom all nations would be blessed, and so on. This was the son whom Abraham loved, this was the son upon whom all of Abraham's hopes were placed. And so this was not a situation in which Abraham could conduct himself in some kind of detached way. 
nonchalantly. Not at all. Abraham is heavily invested. He's emotionally engaged in the life of this son. But when God said, offer him as a burnt offering, Abraham said in his heart, okay. And we have no indication that he stopped to pray about it, that he took time to think about it or to consider or anything of the sort. God gave him a clear command, and from all we can tell, Abraham got right to work to do what he was commanded to do. He got up early in the morning, made the preparations to do what needed to be done. Now this would have been hard enough if he had received the commandment and had been able to get on with it right away, kind of like ripping off a Band-Aid, as, as we say, right? But he wasn't able to do it immediately. He had to travel for three days to get to the place at which the Lord would designate. Can you imagine a three days journey with your son anticipating the sacrifice? And there it's on the third day that he sees the place. And when they get close enough, then Abraham leaves the servants behind and speaks those words of faith, which he says in verse 5. He says, stay here with the donkey while I and the lad go over there. We will worship and return. We will worship, we will return. Obviously, Abraham doesn't yet know how all of this is going to go down, but he does believe, somehow, that both he and Isaac are going to come back. God had made the promises concerning Isaac, and so Abraham trusts that this is all going to work out in the end, even though he does not yet know how. I think Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, gives us a window into Abraham's heart on this occasion when the writer to the Hebrews says that he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. If God could cause Abraham and Sarah at their old age to conceive and have a child together, then surely God could also raise the dead. And maybe those words which the Lord had spoken in Genesis 18:14 were, were ringing in his ear when the Lord was promising the birth of the child. The Lord had said, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Those words, for all we know, may have been ringing in his ear here. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And Abraham and Isaac walk on together, now alone. Isaac carries the wood, Abraham carries the fire and the knife. And then Isaac asks that innocent but painful question. In verse 7, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And we don't know if this is the first time the question came into his mind, but this is an obvious question to ask at this point. Servants and all the other gear is left behind. Abraham and Isaac are going alone together. There's wood, there's fire, there's a knife. Where's the animal for the sacrifice? And again, Abraham's words are words of faith. He doesn't know the ways and the means by which God will do this, but still he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. It may well be, as uh, J.G. Voss expressed it, that by divine guidance, the patriarch spoke a deeper and greater truth than he himself understood at this point. It's clear he trusted God, but he was also obeying God in this most painful of situations. It's hard to say what all would be in a loving father's heart at that moment. A loving father who trusted the Lord but yet had this unspeakably hard calling upon his life. But it's clear that Abraham trusted that it would end well, even if it meant that God raised Isaac from the dead after he had been sacrificed on the altar. He trusted God and he obeyed. He builds the altar, arranges the wood, 
He binds Isaac and puts him on top of the wood. And in this, we should not miss the fact that it seems very likely here that Isaac cooperated here with respect to being offered as a sacrifice. We don't know exactly how old Isaac was at this time. The Jewish historian Josephus said that Isaac was 25. And for all we know, he could have been. I think all that we can say with reasonable confidence is that this happened sometime between when he was weaned in chapter 21 and the death of his mother Sarah, which would have been when he was about 37 years old. So somewhere in that range was when this took place. And we know that he must have achieved a certain stature and physical strength because he's able to carry the wood for the burnt offering. And now here's the thing. A boy who's able to carry wood is able to run away if need be. Abraham is over 100 years old at this point, and so it seems very likely that Isaac cooperated in this even after he knew that it was the Lord's command that he be sacrificed. And then it was only at that last moment when Abraham had stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, only at that moment before his literal obedience to the command given by God that the angel of the Lord called to him and commanded, as in verse 12, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now given Abraham's continued obedience all throughout this situation, it's very clear that Abraham's heart was submissive, that he was ready, if need be, to go through with it all the way to the very killing of his own son and offering him up on the altar. The Lord tested Abraham, and Abraham passed the test with flying colors. It's perfectly clear that he feared God because he had not withheld his son, his only son, from the Lord. Abraham feared the Lord. That's what the angel says there. And so it's very clear that he reverenced and honored the Lord and that he set obedience to the Lord over and above everything else in his life. He trusted the Lord and walked with him to the very brink sacrificing his own son. And though Abraham did not merit any favor with God on account of his obedience, yet nevertheless, in light of his obedience, we see the former promises of God to Abraham renewed and even strengthened there in the words of verses 16 through 18. So look, look there. The Lord says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies and your seed, all nations of the earth, shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And what we have here is the previous promises in a way brought together, brought to a point and even strengthened. They're strengthened in that now the Lord interposes with an oath. The the previous promises to Abraham were not delivered in this way by means of an oath, but here it is. Now, obviously, God's word is good enough. If the Lord says it, that is sufficient. But here the Lord goes even beyond what is sufficient and swears an oath. And the writer to the Hebrews explained this in Hebrews chapter 6 when he said, For when God made the promise to Abraham... Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. 
For men swear by one greater than, than themselves, and with an oath uh, give as confirmation uh, the end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. God is the, the greatest of all possible beings, and he could swear by no one greater, and so he swore by himself. And the reason, the writer to the Hebrews says, the reason for this was because the Lord strongly desired to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. So he swore. He swore by himself. He wanted to make this all very clear and certain. So he swore by himself. And one of the particular aspects of this oath was picked up by Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. And Lord willing, we'll, we'll come back to that in, in our second point. This, this oath is, is very important for us uh, to understand the, the fulfillment of the promises to, to Abraham. But for now, we need to think about how Abraham succeeded here and how when he was tested, he passed the test. And we need to think about what implications there are here for us. Abraham's obedience here on this occasion was his justification by works, to use that language of James chapter 2. We heard that uh, earlier from our brother Stan in the reading of scripture uh, where James says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works, faith was perfected and the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. That's James 2, 21 through 23. James says that Abraham was called the friend of God and indeed that's, that's what you find in the Old Testament in places like 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7 and Isaiah 41, verse 8. And so James there asks that question, was not Abraham our father justified by works? The implied answer is, yes he was. Now, this question is not only rhetorical. To us, it may also seem provocative. To us who believe, as rightly we should, in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That is to say that we are, we are forgiven, counted righteous by God in Christ on the basis of faith in Christ alone. What we need to understand here, though, is that when Paul speaks of justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law in places like Romans, the book of Galatians, Paul is speaking of justification in what is called the forensic sense or the the legal sense, because it is indeed by faith alone that we are justified. Faith alone is the instrument of our justification, because it is faith that unites us to Christ in whom we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. And then by that Blessed union with Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us freely, again, by grace through faith. But Paul is equally clear that the faith which saves, the faith which unites us to Christ, is never alone in the person who is saved. Saving faith is always accompanied by good works. Just think of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. But those who are saved, we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's also a parallel passage in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, and then verse 8, where we read, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. We're saved because of the mercy kindness of God, by grace through faith. But those who are saved need to be careful to engage in good deeds. But on the other hand, when James speaks of justification, he's not using the word justification in the same way that that Paul is. He's using justification rather in the, the declarative sense or in the demonstrative sense. Saving faith, again, is never alone in those who are justified. The one who simply says, I believe, but does not bring forth the fruits of repentance and new obedience to the Lord, is only fooling himself. He's not fooling the Lord. As Martin Chemnitz expressed the matter, he says, James, therefore, is speaking of this, that the obedience and good works of Abraham declared and furnished proof that he had been truly justified by faith. For to James, to be justified means to be declared righteous through external testimonies. That's right. The obedience and good works of Abraham declared and furnished the proof that he actually was justified by faith. That's what James says, right? That the scripture was fulfilled, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And if you'd like to consider this, this issue of, of justification more, in particular in regard to the teaching of, of James chapter 2 and justification by works, our brother uh, Jim Carter preached a, a great sermon on that text in James 2 uh, on a Sunday evening about a month ago. And the sermon's up on the church website under miscellaneous sermons, and I would highly recommend it if you'd like to think more about uh, what James is, is getting at there in James 2, how it relates to, to Abraham here in Genesis 22, justification by faith as pronounced in Genesis 15. It's a great, great sermon. And so Abraham here passed the test, not simply by saying, Lord, I believe your promise, but by actually acting in accordance with his faith, by rendering obedience to the Lord, even when it was hard, even when it didn't make sense, even when it seemed to run contrary to the promises of God. Abraham's faith and his works were working together. This is why the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven seventeen, by faith, when he was tested, Abraham offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Now, now what about us? I imagine that for most of you, if I were to sit down with you and ask if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you would say yes. I imagine that most of you in this room, if I were to ask you if you believe the promises of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins and rose again on the third day from the grave so that all who believe would not perish but have eternal life, my guess is that most of you would say yes, I I believe that. Well, that's good. If you do, you should. That's the word of God to us. That is the gospel. We should believe that, and I'm glad. But James says to us, what use is it, my brethren, 
if someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? What that means then is that all of us who desire to be justified by faith, an important question for us to consider is whether we are justified by works. Again, and let me be absolutely crystal clear about this. Our works do not and never will save us. It is only Christ who saves, and our works do not unite us to Christ. Only faith unites us to Christ, and therefore, again, faith alone is the instrument of justification. But, nevertheless, the reality of our faith will be known and will be shown by our works. Our union with Christ will be shown by our works. Jesus speaks to this, Matthew 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. The man The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. That's Matthew 12, 33 and and 35. And so an important question for us to consider, all of us who want to be justified by faith, is how are we doing with works? In other words, how are we doing with obedience to what God has commanded? How are we doing fleeing temptation, fleeing away from sin? How are we doing walking in obedience to all that Christ has commanded us in his word? More to the point, as it relates to Genesis 22, however, is this question, how are you doing in regard to obedience when it's really hard? How are you doing in regard, say, to loving people in your life who are really hard to love? Our Lord commands us to love our enemies. He says, For if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And so how's it going with loving the difficult people in your family? Or the difficult people at church who rub you the wrong way. Let's face it, if you've been in the church for a while, this church or any other, you know that's bound to happen, right? People are going to rub you the wrong way. We still have to love one another. The Lord tests his people sometimes by putting us in circumstances where obedience in this regard is not always easy. How are you doing with controlling your tongue? In the moments when you're angry and when others are provoking you and you're just ready to unload on them, and let them have it. Do your works justify you then? How are you doing with being honest when dishonesty or deception seems to be, at least according to human wisdom, the best way forward at the moment? Or how about when it comes to working as unto the Lord and not for men when you have the opportunity not to? Do your works testify that you have saving faith? Or do your works say something else? Now, now please, let no one with a tender conscience misunderstand my meaning or or my drift in in any of this. I'm not suggesting that failures in these things necessarily prove that we don't have saving faith. If failure in any one of these things were such that it proved us to be unbelievers, then every one of us in this room would be lost. I'm no way insinuating that moral perfection here on earth is necessary to prove that you have saving faith. I'm saying nothing of the kind. But what I am saying is that if you are justified by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, then there ought to be a consistent pattern of good works, 
consistent pattern of obedience, a consistent pattern of godliness and holiness that exist as fruit and evidence in your life. Fruit and evidence that you are saved. Abraham was justified by his works. It demonstrated that he feared God. So what about you? Are you justified by your works? Praise God if you are, because if you are, it is his work within you that has done it. It's his work within you. It's all of grace that those good works have been done. They're the fruit of your union with Christ. All the glory is Christ's and none is yours. But it might be that you look at your life and you look at the fruit of your life and you find that it is not as it ought to be. The answer for you in your condition is not to try harder. The answer for you in your condition is to look to Christ, to trust in Him, to turn from your sin, to believe in Christ, to believe in the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and that He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus Himself says, apart from me you can do nothing. John fifteen six. He says, but if you abide in Him and He in you, you will bear much fruit. That's where these good works come from. They come from your union with Christ, not from you and your own strength. They come from the work of the Holy Spirit producing the fruits of godliness within you. And so, look to Christ. And that's what we're going to do now as we come to the second point of this sermon, which is the the shadows of a greater sacrifice. The shadows of a greater sacrifice. Because we should see here in this this history of Abraham and Isaac, not only the fact that Abraham was was justified by his works, as, as James 2 says that he was, but we should also see the foreshadowings of greater, we should say, the greatest sacrifice of all time. As I mentioned earlier, the, the promise of Genesis 22:18 is picked up by Paul in Galatians 3:16. And Paul says there in Galatians 3:16, he says, "Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed." He does not say, "And to seeds," as referring to many but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. And when Paul says that in Galatians 3.16, he's pointing back to Genesis 22.18, that in your seed, singular, all nations of the earth will be blessed. He is referring to Christ. Now certainly, as we've seen, Abraham was promised by God that he would have many descendants, that his seed would be multiplied as the stars of the heavens and the sand on the seashore. But... There's a certain singularity in verse 18. In your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And that's what Paul picks up on and says, this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in him coming to earth, living and dying and rising again. And Christ is not only foretold by that explicit element of promise that in your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. There are also so many ways in which Christ is foreshadowed here in the sacrifice of Isaac. We see it, first of all, in that we have a father demonstrating a willingness to sacrifice his son, his only son, whom he loved. And even so it is in the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
And there's uh, some similarity in the, the language of Genesis 22 and that passage in, in Romans 8 that we read this morning together from Romans 8.32 where Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now let's, let's think about the, the parallels and the similarities here. If Abraham demonstrated his fear of the Lord by his willingness to sacrifice his own son whom he loved, then how much more for us has the Lord demonstrated his love toward us by sending his only begotten son into the world and delivering him actually over to death for us all? We see a foreshadowing also in what was to come in that Isaac carried the wood upon which he was to be sacrificed. Abraham placed the wood on him. We find in John 19.17 that Jesus went out bearing his own cross. Both Jesus and Isaac, in short, went out carrying the wood which was to be utilized in the sacrifice of themselves. As John Pearson expressed it in his exposition of the creed, he said, A clearer type can scarce be conceived of the Savior of the world in whom all the nations of the earth were to be blessed than Isaac was. Nor can God the Father, who gave his only begotten Son, be better expressed than by that patriarch in his readiness to sacrifice his son, his only son Isaac, whom he loved. Now when this grand act of obedience was to be performed, we find Isaac walking to the mountain of Moriah with wood on his shoulders, saying, Here is the wood, but where is the sacrifice? While in the command of God and the intention and resolution of Abraham, Isaac is the sacrifice who bears the wood. And the Christ who was to be the most perfect sacrifice, the person in whom all nations were perfectly blessed, could die no other death in which wood was to be carried. And being to die upon the cross was by the formal custom used in that kind of death certainly to carry it. And therefore Isaac bearing the wood did signify Christ bearing the cross. And we see some shadows also with respect to the place. The command given to Abraham in verse 2 was that he go to the land of Moriah and that there he would sacrifice on one of the mountains which the Lord showed him. And what we find in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 is that Mount Moriah was the place where Solomon built the temple of the Lord and that this also was the place where the Lord had appeared to David at the threshing floor of Ornan. Just think... 1 Samuel 24, when the plague was, was over uh, Jerusalem and David sacrificed to the Lord because of his sinful senses. And Abraham named this place here, the Lord will provide. He had said to Isaac that God will provide the lamb for the burnt offerings. And therefore, this became a proverbial saying, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And indeed, that very name, the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh, is seemingly related to the name Moriah. You can hear it in the kind of the similarities, Jireh, Moriah. And, uh, and so Moriah is this place where the Lord provided. And indeed, in the mount of the Lord, it has been provided. This is a place where the Lord accepts sacrifice. This is a place where the Lord provides substitutionary sacrifices. This is a place where the Lord is moved and where the destroying plague was held back in the days of David. In short, there's a lot of 
symbolic importance bound up simply in this location of Mount Moriah, which subsequently became the location of the temple. This would be the place where God would hear the prayers of his people, the place where God would accept sacrifice for them, those sacrifices which were continually pointing forward to the great and final sacrifice whom God the Father provided, his only son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of this progressive revelation from Genesis 22 all through the days of David and Solomon and the temple and so on was directing our gaze to that point at which God provided his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. God the Father gave his son to be a curse for us so that we might be set free from the curse of eternal death which we deserved. This place, Moriah, has a lot to teach us about the holiness of God, about the sinfulness of sin, but it also teaches us about the grace of God, his willingness to forgive, even his willingness to provide a substitutionary sacrifice in the place of those who deserve judgment. And in regard to the the substitutionary atonement here, we see it so clearly here that Isaac was the one whom God commanded to be sacrificed. But just as Abraham had said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, the Lord did provide. He provided that ram and accepted the sacrifice of that ram in the place of the man whose life he had demanded. Now you can you see the parallels here. The fact of the matter is that according to divine justice, we are all sinners and all deserve to die. Just think Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And the death which we deserve is eternal death, even the second death in hell. But in his great mercy towards us, God ordained a substitute. He sent his son, the Lamb of God, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Or as Jesus himself said it, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Or as we find in the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Substitutionary atonement. We see it here in Genesis 22 in the case of that ram caught in the thicket. Isaac's life was spared and that ram died in his place. And even so, Christ took our place on the cross. And the truth of the gospel is that Jesus is the only substitute for sinners. And the only way that we gain a share or an interest in that substitute, the only way his substitution counts for us, is if we place our faith in him. If you do not trust in Christ, then you have no part in his sacrifice. You have no atonement for your sin. That means there's no substitute for you. That means that the wrath of God abides on you. And I don't, I don't want that for you. The call of the gospel is to look to Christ, who is that substitute, to trust in him. And if you have more questions about what it means to, to trust in Jesus or to turn from your sins, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about this good news that Jesus saves sinners because he died in our place. And we also see here some foreshadowing with respect to the resurrection. We have Father Abraham receiving back his son Isaac. 
Now, obviously, Isaac didn't actually die there on Mount Moriah. The Lord intervened and provided a substitute, as we've considered. But nevertheless, again, Hebrews 11.19 states that Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he received him back as a type. This, again, was the faith with, with which Abraham approached the situation. He considered that God is able to raise people from the dead, and thus, in some way or other, the sacrifice of the Son of Promise is going to work out in the end. Abraham believed that God could raise the dead. Indeed, God can. And the writer to the Hebrews says that Abraham received Isaac back as a type. As a type of what? A type of the Messiah, a type pointing ahead to the Messiah, who was to come, who would be sacrificed and raised from the dead. One writer expressed the typology like this, Isaac prefigured him in his deliverance. Both were delivered on the third day, the one as from death, the other really from death, and both returned to their father's house. Moreover, Abraham received his son in the similitude of a resurrection. It was as life from the dead. Abraham looked upon him as dead to him, and Isaac thought of himself as a dead man, so that he that was accounted as one dead was received alive. And so my friends, as we think back on this history of Genesis 22, we want to contemplate the facts of the case, and we want to let these facts point us ahead to the great gospel truths in Jesus Christ. We want to see the love of the Father for His Son, but also the willingness of the Son to die. We want to see the way in which the Lord provided, provided for us by means of a substitutionary atonement. We want to see Isaac and his father walking back down the mountain together and contemplate the joy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His ascension to the right hand of God the Father. We want to remember the jubilation with which our risen Savior said to Mary Magdalene, Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. This was Abraham's trial of faith in which the genuineness of his faith was proved by his obedience. But it was all pointing ahead to the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ once for all on the cross and to the glorious resurrection and ascension which was to follow. And so, my friends, this history is a picture, a shadow of what was to come in Christ. And therefore, let us rejoice that the reality has come. The substance to which this was pointing has come and been accomplished in Jesus Christ. And... The only way for us to rejoice rightly in this is to turn away from our sins and to believe in Jesus Christ. And so may God strengthen our faith in Him that we would be rich in good works and that being justified by faith, our works would declare that our faith is genuine, all to the praise and the glory of God. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank You for the great fact that You did not withhold your only son from us, but you gave him over to death for us all so that we might be forgiven of our sins, counted as righteous. Father, we are thankful for Christ and what he has accomplished and for his ultimate victory, that death and sin did not have the final word, but Christ arose victorious from the grave. Lord, we give thanks for the great truths of the gospel which are ours in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.